For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, visit a celebration of music and brotherhood for veterans of the Vietnam War. Remembering Clyde Appleton, a veteran, teacher, folk singer, and civil rights activist. Stephen Wright talks about exploring his unique comic vision from stand-up to filmmaking. And participants from Sunday's All Souls Procession share the meaning of Tucson's commemoration of life and death. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Across the nation, Veterans Day was observed in many ways this week. One unique Tucson tradition marked 28 years of veteran brotherhood with music and food at Rieto Park Racetrack. Nam Jam is organized by the Vietnam Veterans of America, Tucson Chapter 106. The gathering also offers support resources for vets. Mitchell Riley brings us the voices of some who were there. I'm Sarge Rodriguez, also a member of Tucson Chapter 106. Currently, I'm the Nam Jam director. A couple of Vietnam veterans felt a need for Vietnam veterans to get together. They brought out their guitars and little, maybe a six-pack of beer, who knows what else, and started singing and humming. And it took off from there. Before you knew it, boom, the first Nam Jam started. My name is Dennis St. Germain, and I've been a member of Vietnam Veterans of America Chapter 106 since about 1992. I'm currently president. Uh, the guys who first started it uh, called it Nam Jam. Uh, it was just like one little band in the beginning. And it gradually got hometown bands to participate as volunteers, as is everybody here. It's for Information for vets, it's for a good time, that's the music, and also the, the beverage sales uh, for a good time. And we just want vets to come together, and we want them to realize that we're all here for each other. Why do we do this? To remember, and for some of us old cusses to get together and reminisce a little bit. Since I was recon, I was all over the place. I was up to Da Nang, Pleiku, Anke, come back down, uh, Hoshan Valley. The Army used to call them LERPs, long distance reconnaissance. But it's an eight-man team. You had two calls to make. And that was one to bring the Air Force in or artillery onto the NBA because we were up in the north. Check one, two, check. We're good. You're over there to fight. They shoot people. And if you got to do it, you do it, you know? A lot of other guys didn't ask for it. They were U.S. They didn't ask for it. I was regular Army. I was had told I was told to go. I went, and uh, I wasn't happy about it. But you do what you got to do. I turned 25 over there. The day I turned 25, they murdered the crap out of us. That yeah, was a bad day. My guitar was all combat, and, it, and that's just what I did. I didn't think about. How it's, how it's affecting me, it just did what you got to do, and that's the Marine Corps. You do what you're trained to do, and that's what I did. I saw a real bright flash, which the concussion of the blast blew me back into the helicopter. 
severed my right arm from my shoulder. Nearly took it off. And I was able to turn around. Check there, that's better. And see the rest of the people not make it. Fell into an ambush, and then I remember eight guys, so I packed one of my brothers on my back. He says, don't leave me here, bro. And then I, so I, I put him in a fireman carrier, threw my fuel pack down, kept, kept my M16. And when I got to the chopper, he, he had died on my back. See, so that's so he stays with me. Well, when I first get here, it feels good just to see some of my old buddies. Because I was there in 65 and 66. I lived through it. I didn't enjoy it. I lived through it. I didn't want to go. But I did. We fought for our country. We have issues. We need to be taken care of. That's my main thing right now. Medical care, and we need you know, the homes. We got a lot of Vietnam veterans that are walking the streets, they are homeless. I, I, to me, I was glad to be home, first of all, that I made it. And secondly, how am I? I'm just gonna, you know what, people that don't like that I did what my country asked me to do, that's their problem, not mine. We didn't get a ticker tape parade, and we're not giving a ticker tape parade, but we are de definitely welcoming home all the young men and women who have gone to war for this country. In addition to Sarge Rodriguez and Dennis St. Germain, we also heard from Sean Swartzmiller, Ricardo Cantu, Gary Danjo, Roger Gilbert, and Isidore Abernathy. You can see the video version of this story at azpm.org. I was born in East Virginia, North Carolina I did go. I met Clyde Appleton in May last year when he played a part in a reunion of a group he founded, the Tucson Folk Singers. Starting in the mid-1950s, the folk singers held meetings where people from many different backgrounds shared music, community news, and political awareness. Appleton was a Korean War veteran and educator who became a civil rights activist, and he died last month in Tucson, just short of his 87th birthday. I asked two of his many longtime friends to tell us about him. Barbara Elfbrandt was a teacher who, alongside her husband Vern and Clyde Appleton, took a case to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1961 that abolished an Arizona loyalty oath that had been required of state employees. Ted Warmbrand is a folk historian who's been interviewing members of the Tucson folk singers to preserve their story. My husband was assigned to teach at TUSD when we arrived at Wakefield Junior High. And on the first day that he arrived, he met the only other union teacher in the building. It was Clyde Appleton. They were immediately friends. <laughs> they couldn't be separated after that. <laughs> when Vern and I finally rented a house, supposedly by ourselves, we agreed to take Clyde in, so he lived with us for about three years before he left Tucson. Ted, what kind of an impression do you think that Clyde made on people? Well, I've been interviewing the people who knew him as a young man who, in, in his heyday here when he was running the Tucson Folk Singers. And, you know, no one's ever said anything bad about him. People were entranced by him. 
The women who were kids at the time were falling in love with him. He was so good at what he did. He had a, a kind of quiet, insistent talent, a, a great sense of respect for people and their differences. He, he loved that. I understand he was an incredible teacher in the classroom. He said he never had trouble with students and he was teaching middle school, or junior high was what they called it then. I don't know if he ever made any enemies. I, <laughs> Maybe J. Edgar, but other than that. <laughs> trouble in mind, I'm blue, but I won't be blue always because the sun's gonna shine in my back door someday. When the Tucson folk singers gatherings were happening and people started finding out about it and the group started to kind of accumulate, what kind of an impact do you think that had on Tucson's political landscape? It was just the end of the McCarthy era. And uh, a lot of these people had been really intimidated to involve themselves in the issues that they had grown up with and that meant a lot to them. Outside of the folk singers, many of us were involved in the peace movement locally. We had peace marches and vigils. Uh, we picketed at the old Pickwick Inn. We picketed at various places for racial uh, integration. And then I would go to the folk singers and there would be all these people who had all this experience uh, working, you know, for these issues and they didn't come to our meetings and they didn't come to the marches. And I finally said, what gives here? And they looked at me and they said, no, if we come, they'll start calling you names. <laughs> uh, our background is not really going to help you. And that probably said a lot to me uh, about how things worked politically in this country. As someone once said, what does singing old songs have to do with making new conditions? And it seems paradoxical, but I think the young people got a sense that this is some place where they could express themselves and their better selves and be around people who had not, quote, sold out their values. And somehow a lot of these songs gave you a, a collective empathetic sense with the peoples of the world. Somebody called them one world songs. You know, I often say a song, you have to sing it. It's like putting some clothing on to see if it feels right. And, and Clyde was able to get people to sing, even if they were told they shouldn't be singing to it. But he, he wanted you to sing together. gonna shine in my door someday. Ted, do you know anything about the album that uh, Clyde recorded? Well, the album, I think, Barbara, were you around when they put the album together? It was yes, I was there when we recorded it and when we put it together, yes. It was in some st radio studio <laughs> yes, late uh, at night. <laughs> right. We snuck into a radio studio because one of our... Uh, uh, champions was a DJ and uh, we recorded it at night and uh, 
probably four or five nights um, over a period of time. This was 1961. I spoke to Doug yesterday, who thinks his sister came up with the title, Gotta Live the Life I Sing About. I'm gonna live the life I sing about in my song. I'm gonna stand for right and always shun the wrong. If I'm in a crowd, if I'm alone, out in the street or in my home, I gotta live the life I sing about in my song. Any last thoughts on Clyde's legacy for us, Barbara? I identified my experience in Tucson and what Tucson was all about with Clyde. I think Tucson and the Southwest just meant so much more to me because of who he was and the people that I got to meet and be involved with and the ideals that I had an opportunity to live out because of Clyde. So I, I just looked at it as a great time. <laughs> you know, not, not that there were, weren't a lot of problems on the way, but it was sort of like we were going someplace. And there was motion, were, yeah, call it yeah. social and, motion. And by the way, we were having a good time doing it. <laughs> Which is what Pete Seeger said, if you're not going to have a good time changing the world, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point, yeah. Barbara Elfbrand and Ted Wormbrand shared memories of their friend Clyde Appleton, who died last month in Tucson at age 86. Go out and get drunk and raise Sam on a Monday. I gotta live the life I sing about in my song, in my song. It's my birthday recently. For my birthday, I got a humidifier and a dehumidifier. Put them in the same room, let them fight it out. <laughs> then I filled my humidifier with wax, now my room's all shiny. When Stephen Wright first appeared on The Tonight Show in 1982, he caught the audience off guard with his methodical, understated delivery and bizarre subject matter. He definitely stood out from the crowd, and today he is often cited as a major influence on many of the most popular comics of the decade. Stephen Wright has continued to expand his comic vision as an actor, writer, director, and producer. He earned an Oscar in 1989 for the short film The Appointments of Dennis Jennings. Stephen Wright is currently consulting producer on the fourth season of Louis C.K.'s acclaimed series, Louie. Stephen Wright will perform in Tucson Friday evening at the Rialto Theater, which gave me a chance to talk with him about how it all started. First time was... Uh... When I went to an open mic, July 3rd, 1979, it was the first time I was ever on stage, Wednesday night. Went up and did my three minutes. Uh, you know, it's very different than being funny with your friends because when you're funny with your friends, there's many things happening. They say something, uh, something comes on the TV or someone walks by carrying something weird or something, you know, and you're just making comments about all these things but on stage there's nothing happening so you have to make it all up and 
So it was pretty uh, an intense thing. It was something I wanted to try since I was 16, and when I actually went on there, I was 23. So it was all theory until that night when I actually said jokes in front of an actual audience. And the fact that they laughed at some of them was like a big, big, giant thing for me. It was like, oh, my God, they did laugh at some of these things. So I'm going to come back to the the next open mic. And I just kept going back. Do you have any interest in sharing any jokes from that era that you might remember? Yeah, I remember the first joke I said was uh, I went into a bookstore and I started talking to this French-looking girl. She was a bilingual illiterate. She couldn't read in two different languages. <laughs> yeah, I think I remember that from the early days, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, that went on my actually went on my album when I made my first album. That was the first joke, I think. I only had like two and a half minutes. Let's talk about your stage persona a little bit. Do you recognize a big difference between yourself on and off stage? I don't because when I'm on stage, I, it's very intense and I'm concentrating. It's the most I concentrate in my life is when I'm on the stage. I'm trying to say the joke the right way. I'm trying to remember what the next joke is. I'm very, very focused. So that focus kind of exaggerated. You can hear how I'm talking. This is just how I talk. But being so focused, it even made the monotone even more exaggerated because I, I'm communicating something funny, but I'm, it's very serious to me in order to communicate it the right way. Being out there is very serious or it won't go right. So to me, it's my version of me being focused. I mean, I laugh a lot in real life. and I mean, I'm talking a little bit slightly different to you right now, but it's an exaggeration because of the focus. If something happens in the show, uh, like, say, a waitress drops a tray or something goes on, or maybe even you get heckled, does that break that uh, that train of consciousness for you? It could, but it's, you learn to ignore those things that you just said. Like, if someone heckles me, I ignore them. I just continue as if the room is silent. Because I don't want them to alter what I'm doing. If I comment to them, then then they won. They got me to acknowledge them, but I don't acknowledge anything. I just keep going as if I'm in a library. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard thing because your initial gut is to say, you know, some swear at them or something. But you know, then, then, then you, you're out. Then it's like you're off the track. It's so interesting to me is a play. At a play, people don't heckle at a play. You know, no one will yell out like some guy's walking across the room getting a beer. Get me one! Get me one, too! <laughs> that would never happen in a play. But in a comedy thing, it will happen because it's because you're talking directly to the audience. Sometimes these insane, crazy people get that mixed up and they think, well, uh, he's talking to me, I'm going to talk back to him. In your life, though, under any conditions at all, have you ever heckled anybody yourself? That's an amazing question. No one's ever asked me that question. And no, I haven't. Because the way I was raised was like, that would be rude. That would just be rude. Yes, I'm it very, would. I barely swear on stage. 
because of that saint how I was raised. I don't care. Other people swear constantly. I don't judge them negatively. But how I was raised, I don't swear. I don't put people down. I don't criticize people. I don't make fun of people. So anyway, no, I've never done that. That's funny. Tell us a little about the creative connection that you and Louis C.K. have that you're putting to work in this new season of the show. We have a, a similar opinion of what's funny or not. We have a very similar like gut feeling of what works and what doesn't. Like even though he what he does stand up wise and what I do is very different. I mean, it's great working with him because he's a genius. And just to be involved with him is amazing. Like he, he's like he has a band. Like he has the show with all these people. It's like he writes it all, directs it, acts in it, edits it, and he it's like he allows me to sit in with his band. I basically give him my opinion on the writing, the story. I go to the shooting. I tell him what I think works or not works, and then I look at the editing. It's been an amazing experience. One of my best creative experiences I've ever had. Just between you and me, I can hear a little chatter in the background. Is that a radio or a TV or something? It no, also... I'm in the lobby of a movie theater. Oh. After I talk to you, I'm going to go in and watch a movie. What are you going to see? I'm going to see the James Bond movie. I'm going to go see it tomorrow. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I love him as a James Bond. The only one I really didn't take to was Roger Moore and that other guy after him. Timothy Dalton. They weren't guy enough. They were too modelish looking me. can't believe I'm talking about James Bond during this interview. Who knew? What's an early memory, a primal memory of James Bond for you? Ursula Andrews. Stephen Wright performs Friday evening at the Rialto Theater. Tucson's All Souls Procession has grown from involving one dozen participants in 1989 to an estimated 150,000 marchers and spectators this year. Last Sunday, Andrew Brown joined the crowd. What are your names? Elijah and Isaiah. We're, We're twins. You guys always talk like, at the same time? Yeah. <laughs> where, where are we at? A parade. And what's going on in this parade? Um, people are walking, celebrating their lives, celebrating whoever died. This is a demonic event, people! Shame on you Catholics for worshipping Satan! For worshipping the devil! This is a bad parade! I am Brother Dean. What are you doing tonight? I am out here preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins or get ready to go to hell forever. We're a group of people who are uh, loving and kind and we create a blockade of pure love to drown out and block the hate preacher here so that he can't um, spew his words and um, affect people who are here mourning. Oh, I gotta go. I'm Nadia Hagen, I'm the artistic director for this mess. <laughs> I get very worried about all the things that I'm trying to accomplish, you know, to have in place. But at a certain point, you either have those things in place or you don't. And so they kind of drop off. And so I just go, okay, at a certain point it becomes, yeah, very zen. It is what it is. That's what it is. This is awesome. 
I like how everybody's dressed up and into it and nobody's drunk, stupid, stoned. It seems like a nice time. I am wearing a headdress that I made. It has big skulls on it, huge flowers, a veil. Got my face painted, rocking a skeleton outfit. Looks great. <laughs> I'm here to remember uh, one of my really good friends, uh, Angeline Lovendahl, and one of my other really good friends who passed away. His name was Malcolm Green. Fabulous and flamboyant, it's the most beautiful event. I'm dressed as a zebra. I get stripy zebra stuff all over and lots of fur, and, and it's a little itchy. I kind of dress like this all the time, except for work. It seems a little bit more party-themed this year than usual. I don't know how I feel about that. It's usually pretty somber. I think it depends on where you are. We're not in the middle of the processional. I think where you get the party goers is hanging on the side, being the spectators, and where you get the feeling of the processional is to be part of it. I've definitely come for fun as well, but it's it's definitely a different experience when you have someone that you're walking for. Definitely more emotional. We're walking for a couple people. One is our cat, Tabitha, and one is a student of mine that I lost a couple days ago. Four years old. I made this little uh, picture of him, and so I'm walking with him to kind of remember him. Our two brothers passed away, and um they, um, got, one of them got murdered, Denise Tapia Kramer, and he got shot, and um, so we called our other brother, David Tapia Kramer, and he came and the car rolled and he passed away. And on the same day. So we made this vote for nine years, and how much we remember them and misses them, so that's how. I'm looking at all the people respecting their lost ones and uh, I have a few of my own and it's, it's a good thing. You shouldn't mourn and be sad for the dead, you should be happy for all the things they brought to your life. This is uniquely Tucson, and I really appreciate it. Andrew Brown spoke to some of the participants in the 2015 All Souls Procession in downtown Tucson. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>